You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 16th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, China's top leaders meet to set the country's economic path for the next year. We'll explore what Beijing's plans are for the short term. Also coming up... The United States is all in on Africa's future. Because when Africa succeeds, the United States succeeds. Quite frankly, the whole world succeeds as well. The U.S. President Joe Biden announces billions of dollars in new funding for African countries. But in the race against China's influence, is this all a bit late? We'll have our scientific minds blown with the confirmation of one of Einstein's principles. We'll be in Zurich to go through the papers and we'll be treated to the latest instalment of Andrew Muller's What We Learned. We learned that municipal authorities in St. Petersburg have opened collection points at which citizens may donate unwanted accordions. Unwanted accordions. Imagine. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The United States Pentagon will expand military combat training for hundreds of Ukrainian forces starting next year. Twitter has suspended more than 25 accounts that report on Elon Musk and track the private planes of billionaires. And thousands of documents on the murder of the US President John F. Kennedy are being published in full for the first time. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, China is currently in the grip of a surge in COVID cases with warnings that a rollout of vaccines must happen quickly if the country is to avoid a death toll of one million people. It is in this context that China's top leaders are holding their annual meeting to decide the economic and policy outlook for the year ahead. The event is called the Central and e- Central Economic Work Conference and it's been held for several years and following it each year is Isabel Hilton, visiting professor at King's College London and the founder and advisor to China Dialogue. A very good morning, Isabel. Good morning. Very good to have you. Um, before we look at the, the context and the, and, the, and the COVID cases, could you just tell us what is the Central Economic Work Conference? <laughs> well, it is uh, China's top uh, economic, uh, top level economic planning meeting. Uh, it's not exactly an, an open meeting. Um, in fact, this this year there were rumours all week that it had been postponed because of the wave of COVID that China is experiencing. But uh, it does appear to have uh, to have gone ahead. It'll it'll end today, and it will set the direction for China's economy uh, for the year. What do they actually talk about? I know it's, it's this is a big old guessing game, but that, that's often the case when it comes to finding out what China's policy for, uh, formatting is. But when they set the economic policy, what exactly do they do? Well, when they uh, what they what they what they've done, what we know, but from uh, from what's been issued on Xinhua and what's been said by prominent economists, is that they're concerned about the failure of the economy to deliver the target of about seven percent growth that they set last year. We're at about three point three percent. The opportunity cost was largely the uh, prolonged shutdown over over COVID that we had with the zero COVID policy, which was dramatically reversed about two weeks ago. 
Um, and, and so now they're discussing what they can do to stimulate the economy. And what's come out so far um, has been pretty much what, what, what they were supposed to be doing anyway, which was um, stimulating consumer growth uh, and, and some infrastructure spending. They're talking about reducing the costs of raising a family. You know, they're trying to release what they believe are, you know, substantial bank deposits, which people have accumulated uh, during during lockdowns. It's not entirely clear that that's going to work. And there isn't anything very clear about delivery of these policies. As I say, these are principles that we've seen before. Um, so until the details come out, uh, it's it's more hope over expectation. Um, in that context, are we looking at a, a, at a Chinese economy which is going to get more support from central government? You, meant, you mentioned the idea of supporting families and what have you, but how much are Chinese people now going to be able to rely on central government support? Well, until now, you know, there are important sectors that that people have assumed were cast iron uh, because the government supported them. And among those, of course, are the housing sector. And a, a great deal of China's growth in the past 20 years has come from a pattern in which local authorities who were rather short on their budgets would confiscate essentially agricultural land, rezone it, borrow and build apartments. They've now now got a surplus of apartments which could house most of Britain's population with some to spare. So the you know the market has essentially collapsed, and uh, there are people who have paid for apartments up front, and they they haven't got them. There are companies that are uh, unable to meet their their debts. And the assumption has always been that central government wouldn't let this collapse, but it is now enormous. And the government is is rather desperately trying to find a way out of this mess. So that's the main driver of GDP growth, which has stalled. And added to that, you have all the dis- supply chain disruptions because of, of the pandemic. Um, we had them because of lockdown in the past three years. And now we've got them because most of China has got COVID, having lifted the lockdown without preparing the population through uh, through inoculation. So it, these are very rocky uh, times for the economy. And it's not really clear whether people can rely on the government in the way that they used to. So some of the dissatisfaction that we saw before the waves of protest over lockdown were about uh, apartment buildings and about people who can't get their money out of failing banks and things like that. And I expect we'll see a bit more of that. We have seen measures which were meant to support families. If you remember, maybe 18 months ago, the government closed down the private tutorial sector, which was very expensive. But that was, again, uh, a product of stiff competition for educational resources. So uh, by closing it down, it meant that families had to find other ways of trying to favour their children in what was a competition which remained just as stiff. So housing and education being the main costs of raising children, it's not really clear how the government is going to bring those costs down, but we shall see what they come up with. Tell us about the effect of the, the way that the Chinese authorities have handled the COVID pandemic. I mean, it's only it's little over a week then since President Xi, who had clung so hard to his zero COVID strategy, had been forced effectively to abandon it. So what has been the effect now in terms of 
the amount of damage that the zero COVID policy has done to to the Chinese economy and to society, but also what people are expecting from this conference to try and remedy that. Well, there's a, it, it's a, an extraordinary U-turn, and and it it it's we will no doubt speculate for some time on what actually finally caused the U-turn, but certainly economic damage was one part of it. I think the other factor was that with Omicron, it simply wasn't working. You had the country locked down, and Omicron was spreading anyway because it's so uh, highly infectious. Um, but what what I think people will reproach the government for is that having enforced the lockdown in a really brutal and uncompromising fashion. They they didn't prepare uh, an exit route. So they, they didn't uh, vaccinate the elderly population. They didn't really vaccinate uh, the population to any effect at all. So, uh, you know, the, this U-turn has just let uh, Omicron rip and almost everyone I know in Beijing now uh, has COVID. So, we don't know what the death rate will be. Um, presumably, this wave will pass. But that's uh, another hit to the economy, having you know gone from one extreme uh, to the other. There's not very much they can do about the, the economic impact of the exit wave, which is the one we're seeing now. Um, and uh, I guess those who don't have Omicron or those who are being released from lockdown will be able to go back to work. And that will include a lot of migrant workers who have simply been without income for a very long time and have been pretty unhappy. So to that extent, and as when activity picks up, we will see a, a, a return to some kind of, um, of growth. The remedies that the government is proposing for growth, as I say, are, are very much in line with past practice. The housing market is is going to remain, I think, in the doldrums. But they're talking about infrastructure construction, which, again, is the very tired old playbook um, that China has, uh, has has been following for some time. And, and China's pretty overbuilt in infrastructure at this point. To what it does, it churns economic activity rather than stimulating in itself. They're also talking about high quality uh, growth, which again is is a is a thread that we've been following for some time. And by that they mean artificial intelligence, advanced technologies, and so on. So and uh, nothing new so far. We'll see. How much is how much are the Chinese authorities now, though, being forced to listen a little bit more to their citizens, given the fact that we saw those protests? They were based on the zero COVID t- policy, but there were also wider elements of dissatisfaction against the government. Are we going to see in any shape or form a, a longer term change in strategy that allows for a little bit more wriggle room? That would be quite hard to predict, I think, because it could go either way. Certainly, they have listened in in the sense that to, to the degree that the protests were about lockdown, we, we know what they've done. They've simply reversed policy. To the degree that the protests were about things like censorship, uh, things like Communist Party dictatorship, which a lot of them were, um, that I think we won't see any give over so we're likely to see people who advocated that uh, have a very hard time indeed. Um, and I, it, 
in in my view, what the government will do, certainly in the short term, is to emphasise, A, that it cares, B, that the reverse of the policy was entirely science-based, which is the line we've been getting, um, three, uh, that uh, national security trumps everything and uh, troublemakers are all inspired by foreigners. So, you know, that that again, we're we're seeing those lines uh, being coming out in circulation. They don't imply a change of policy, but of course, when the government changes its policy, it doesn't want it to look as though it's been bullied into it by the people. So it will find another it will find another reason should it change policy. I don't expect that to be much liberalisation. Isabel Hilton, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Twenty Four. You're with the Globalist. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. So 2.13am in Washington, D.C., 7.13 here in London. You're with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, President Joe Biden says the U.S. is all in when it comes to supporting and investing in Africa. At a summit with 49 of the continent's heads of state, President Biden announced billions of dollars in support and investment. Well, I'm joined now by Julie Norman, the co-director of the UCL Centre on U.S. Politics. A very good morning to you, Julie. Good morning. So what kind of investment are we looking at? Yeah, so um, at yesterday or this week's summit, Biden uh, pledged to, uh, to pledge fifty-five billion dollars to Africa over the next three years, and this is through a series of initiatives. Um, the administration's focusing a lot on supporting this free trade zone, which actually was um, supposed to start back in 2019 on the continent, and kind of got scuttled by COVID and other things. So the, the U.S. is looking to reinvest in that. Uh, they're looking to help uh, kind of some of the African states transition better to clean energy. And they're trying to do different trainings to just try and get uh, get African continent more on board with the digital economy. So I'd say those kind of three buckets are where they're focusing this aid. And how well thought out is this this policy being being considered to be? Yeah, well, there's some different takes on it. I would say there's there's usually some appreciation for um, for more investment in Africa, and I think for this administration especially, the tone towards Africa was so negative under the Bush administration under under the Trump administration that I think uh, Biden felt it was important to at least shift that narrative and show that the U.S. is invested there. With that said, I think the the numbers as as much as we say oh billions of aid going, I mean. We're talking about 55 billion pledged to Africa. That's the same amount, um, less actually than the U.S. has been given to Ukraine over the last year, which most Americans, I think, support. Um, but it's, it's it puts it kind of in perspective that we're looking at a lot of need 
in the continent um, and the amount of aid that's being pledged is appreciated, but maybe not enough to plug all the gaps that really need to be there. I mean, straight away, when you think of the United States trying to rapidly invest in, in the whole of the African continent, you immediately think, well, China's already been doing this for a very, very long time. Well, that's exactly right. And if you know, we kind of look at maybe what motivated uh, this this action. Again, obviously, there's some real um, you know pressing issues right now with food shortages and supply chains that that the whole world is facing, but Africa in particular. But I think the main impetus for this is, of course, the U.S.'s ongoing competition with China, which is global, but is really uh, really quite visible in Africa. And uh, you know, myself and others who have done work there, you can quite see that that most of the uh, infrastructure projects that are taking place in terms of roads, bridges, et cetera, and much of the continent are um, sponsored and funded by by China and their initiatives. So the U.S. is trying to push back at that. They realize that they're behind. Um, and that space is also opening up to other countries as well, including Russia as, as well as others. So the U.S. knows they kind of need to get a foothold there. So it's a bit of a geopolitical consideration here as well. I mean, how practically can the United States get a foothold when, as you say, if you look at, content, at countries right across Africa, you see that you know a, a new railroad that's going to be built will be built by the Chinese. Schools, stadiums, everything. They have a toehold in, in, in Africa, which means that although the progress is made now, there is a real sense that in two decades, three decades time, dozens, millions of people are going to be indebted to, to Beijing. Right. And that is certainly one of the, um, I think, concerns of the U.S. And I think there's some worry that some of these initiatives, again, may be too small to make a serious dent or may just be too late coming on the scene. Um, I think the U.S. feels that it's you still have to try and do something. You can't just kind of cede this uh, to China right now. And what they are trying to do is, again, emphasize areas that are different from where China's emphasis are. So the U.S. is not coming in and saying we will also build dams and bridges and roads and infrastructure. They are trying to focus on areas where um, where they see that they have a bit more niche to be able to support the continent. And again, it's more in this like digital infrastructure and clean energy um, and things where maybe China is not investing as much just yet, so to speak, in the continent anyway. So trying to differentiate in that way. Um, but I do think it's an uphill battle, especially in many states that really need the physical infrastructure as a priority. How would you react? Imagine, let's imagine the, one of the 49 leaders who are at this summit in, in Washington this week. How would you react to this? Uh, how would the leaders react? I, yes. I would. I would say it was. Um, you, we heard some kind of some mixed, uh, some mixed reactions. Uh, you know, uh, Paul Kagame from uh, from Rwanda kind of saying, "Well, it was a good meeting." Essentially, um, I, I would also note that Biden was giving this talk like ten minutes before the Morocco match, so I think everyone was kind of like antsy on that regard as well. Um, but um, but seriously, I, I think um, you know, I think people are realistic about the fact that the U.S will often make these big pledges. And the reality is when, you know, if the rubber hits the road or not, if they actually see these kinds of commitments implemented on the ground. Um, I would say, too, there was some response that, um, you know, George W. Bush, as well as Obama, had also had very um, pointed African policies that were a bit more focused. And there was some worry that Biden's laundry list may just be you know, kind of rattling off various investments without a real sense of purpose and focus. So I do think the administration is going to need to show that this wasn't just 
a one-off feel-good summit. This isn't just some token funding thrown to different things. This actually is a real investment. And so, you know, I think many African leaders have heard this kind of talk before. Um, they they really want to see uh, the real commitment from the U.S. So I think that that pressure will somewhat be on the Biden administration over these next two years uh, from an African perspective. Do we have any idea how they will turn these rather woolly promises into something that does have legs, that does work? Yeah, well, I mean, you, uh, you know, U.S. is uh, USAID, the U.S. kind of aid agency is is active in Africa. I don't want to suggest that they they are not. So a lot of this will uh, will run through those channels. Um, there has been efforts to try and create better cross border sharing of especially um, especially critical resources and rare minerals to try and uh, keep that as an intra Africa. Um, like a income generating activity rather than having it all completely exploited and, uh, and, and taken out. Um, again, focusing on this free trade concept, which there is a lot of support within the continent for. It's um, expected that that could, um, you know, increase uh, like inter-Africa trade by up to $70 billion. So there's a lot of support for that. So I do think there's some key areas where the U.S. can press in. Um, but again, that commitment just needs to be there. And, it, and I think people just need to see it starting soon. I will say, too, the U.S. was very good about getting a lot of vaccines to Africa as well. So that's something that the Biden administration touted also. But I think they're recognizing they, they need to move on from that with some other kinds of uh, some aid and support. Julie Norman, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's Globalist, our very own Andrew Muller recaps everything we've learned this week, including an appeal for any leftover musical instruments you may have hanging around in your house. We learned that municipal authorities in St. Petersburg have opened collection points at which citizens may donate unwanted accordions. Unwanted accordions. Imagine. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And you're back with The Globalist, where the time here in London is 7.21. Now, a moment ago, we heard about pledges from the United States to invest in Africa. Well, two days ago, the EU was making similar promises to representatives from ASEAN countries at a dedicated summit in Brussels. William Yang is the East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle, and he's joining me now from Taipei. Very good afternoon to you, William. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Um, now, let's begin with this, this, this summit. It was the EU's first full summit with ASEAN nations in Brussels, wasn't it? Tell us just how important a, a meeting it was. I think this meeting is very important for both of these two blocks uh, as it comes at a time when the uh, economic effect of the Ukraine war is really uh, wearing on European nations, uh, especially with this winter. A lot of the countries are facing energy shortage and also uh, rising fuel prices, energy prices. And at the same time, uh, China's uh, influence and uh, aggression in the South China Sea is but uh, increasing the concerns on both the ASEAN nations and also the EU in terms of the uh, trade route uh, potentially being disrupted if uh, Beijing continues its aggressive moves. So uh, this, I think, is a opportunity for the EU to pitch itself as a very reliable alternative uh, trade partner for uh, ASEAN nations. But the ASEAN nations, on the other hand, have made it really clear 
that they are not interested in being forced to pick. Want to have it be able to keep their options open because several of the ASEAN nations have very close military ties with Russia, while all of them uh, have very very uh, depend high dependency, economic dependency on China. So they they just cannot afford to simply pick a side and then start to deepen and pivot away from the two countries that are clearly overshadowing this summit. It is a really complicated situation, isn't it? Because while the EU can put forward a very common united front, it is, you know, arguably its very purpose. ASEAN has a much more fragmented and different approach because different countries are pulled in different directions. Right, exactly. I think the nature of the two organizations is also are is also very different. Uh, the EU uh, has always been acting on a united and consensus-based uh, kind of, uh, like, I think, way, while the ASEAN is kind of like this loosely uh, connected uh, regional organization that on most of the issues, they will try to reach a consensus. But deep down, each country have their own agenda. And we're already seeing the effect of that uh, wearing on the uh, region and the organization as a whole when different countries clearly have their different calculations and different priorities. And so for But then I think uh, the important thing for us to also remember is that uh, as an organization as a whole, for them to be able to actually come together and go to Brussels and hold this very important meeting with their third largest trading partner, it still says something about maybe a consensus is starting to emerge at a time when clearly the pressure from Beijing is really uh, coming up at the back of the mind of every member state of the ASEAN. And they are trying to see where they can find other alternatives or other future where they won't have to constantly feel like they are going to be coerced in every kind of way, especially economically and trade-wise. And this is something that was picked up by the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. She, she told the meeting, there might be many, many miles that divide us, but there are many more values that unite us. I mean, where are these areas of consensus? I think the consensus is definitely uh, to maintain and keep the supply chain resilience because, as we know, supply chain resilience has been such a big issue since the COVID-19 pandemic. And then on top of that, since the Ukraine war broke out, it further complicates the global supply chain, the global trade routes, and a lot of the uh, original existing long-standing uh, reliable ways of trading and a commerce have just been disrupted and uh, the all both, both of these big blocks are trying to find new ways to establish a more reliable way forward as they try to deal with the rising economic pressure and at the same time the uncertainty that is uh, emerging in both regions as we know not just in Europe facing the ongoing impact of the Ukraine war in the Indo-Pacific the rising tension around Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait is actually also going to potentially have huge impacts on these ASEAN nations. So I think uh, definitely both both sides are trying to find a way to unite their power and then see if they will be able to pitch for uh, put forward a more, I think, a new uh, dynamic uh, between the two blocks. And then uh, so they will be able to find uh, power and uh, the, the drive to, uh, I think, uh, stop the bleeding in their economy. I mean, you just mentioned one area which has been particularly difficult. You, you've spoken about it already, but let's explore it further. The EU is, is desperately trying to get a common front 
in as many places as it can against Russia. The ASEAN countries have a much more nuanced and difficult relationship with Russia, don't they? So th- this is somewhere that the, you know, the, 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 agree, the agreeing to disagree might be the only way forward. Yes, exactly. I think from the statement that the meeting issue yesterday, we could already see that even though they uh, emphasize that most countries are wary of the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there are some different views and the assessments among some of the member states. And I think it's very clear that this is referring to Vietnam and Laos, which are two countries and also Myanmar, the but uh, the Burmese uh, junta, military junta, did not get invited to attend the meeting. But these three countries are militarily very closely aligned with Russia. And traditionally, they rely on Russia heavily with the military support. And uh, these are also three countries with a more, I think, uh, authoritarian style kind of government. So uh, clearly, they will not be able to agree on the issue of the uh, Ukraine war, and they will have to somehow find a compromise on both sides. And uh, I think uh, the EU recognized that they also cannot push too hard in terms of the human rights standard in the uh, region in uh, Southeast Asia, especially with uh, Indonesia recently passing the law of uh, criminalizing sex outside of marriage. So I think uh, this is going to challenge and uh, force uh, Brussels to try to come up with a new way of approaching and reassessing its relationship with ASEAN and maybe uh, compartmentalize the trade relationship a little bit away from their uh, values based on uh, th- that is democracy and freedom. And maybe, uh, you know, there will be a way for the two sides to meet in the middle and then uh, be able to benefit them b- both sides economically and trade-wise. William Yang, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here in London is 7.29. In a moment, we'll be getting some science news of a revolutionary nature. But first, a quick look at the headlines. The United States Pentagon will expand military combat training for hundreds of Ukrainian forces. From January next year, 500 Ukrainian troops every month will travel to Germany to train with the US Army in advanced battlefield tactics. The Pentagon's already trained more than 600 Ukrainians to operate an advanced rocket launcher. Twitter has suspended more than 25 accounts that report on Elon Musk and track the private planes of billionaires. He accused those who share information about his location of posting assassination coordinates. A number of prominent tech journalists at CNN, The Washington Post and The New York Times have also had their accounts closed. And thousands of documents on the murder of the US President John F. Kennedy are being published in full for the first time. More than 13,000 files are being placed online, with the White House saying more than 97% of records are now publicly available. JFK was shot in Texas in 1963. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, promising developments from science were announced this week. Not only the breakthrough in nuclear fusion energy, but also one of the core principles of Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. It's called the equivalence principle, and it's been confirmed. Good news, isn't it, David Badanis, author of the bestseller E equals MC squared, a very, very good biography of Albert Einstein. Very warm welcome to you, David. Good to have Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. Um, <clears throat> What is the equivalence principle? Funny you should mention. <laughs> 1907, right. Albert Einstein is really depressed. He's published a paper on special relativity. He's published his paper on equals MC squared. And the only job that he has is patent clerk 
third class in Switzerland at a small office. His head says if he gets promoted, he can maybe be second class, and at the end of his life, maybe even first class. He looks out the window, and he sees somebody on a roof uh, painting, uh, uh, fixing the roof tiles. And he thinks if the person falls off, they won't feel any gravity. But where does the gravity go? Standing on the roof, you feel the gravity. It keeps you attached to the roof. That's you don't float up in the sky. That's a question we always ask, isn't it? As where one does. The gravity go? Where does the gravity go? So he worked out that from following from that simple uh, idea, he came up with the notion that outer space isn't smooth and flat like we think. There's actually curves in it. Planets whiz around on those curves. Satellites whiz around on the curves. And now uh, scientists, I believe from France, have found that little objects float around in exactly the prediction that Einstein came up with. It's a wonderful thing to think that Einstein's theories, what, 120 years on, are still holding. And this is the stuff... I mean, your book in, has in, in the past has talked about how he sort of like loses his confidence just a little bit, doesn't he? And he starts to not hold to his own theories. But the fact remains that... Well, 120-something years on, we're still trying to prove a lot of what he was thinking. Totally. His predictions, he had about 20 or 30 years when he was on top of the world. It turns out you're closer to Albert Einstein than you think. This morning, I was holding my trusty little iPhone, as many of us do, and the circuits inside the phone that give us our GPS match exactly the thoughts that were in Einstein's brain. He came up with some of the ideas which are necessary for GPS to work. Every time you um, you hold your iPhone, uh, the circuits inside there are matching exactly the thoughts that he had in, indeed, in 1907 and 1915. It's a little bit of Albert Einstein in your hand every day. Okay, I'm taking a punt here. Can you explain what those little things are? Sure. It turns out that, um, you know, like uh, in an airplane, um, uh, if you open the window when you're really high up, it's not really good for you. Um, and the air hostesses, they get really fussy about it, you know, and people get sucked out of the window and stuff because the air is thinner there and thicker at the bottom. We don't notice that when we walk around. Who knows it's thinner up there? Well, it turns out Time, time itself travels at different rates depending how far you are away from Earth. Isn't that weird? And our GPS satellites, time travels at a slightly different rate than it does down here. If we didn't correct for that, everything would be off kilter. You'd want to land at a Heathrow Airport and you'd end up in Croydon, for goodness sake. Or you'd wish to go to lovely Croydon and you end up at Heathrow. So it gets all in wrong. Einstein worked out how much time slows up there. And he worked out how much the corrections we have to do. And that's in the uh, circuits of our cell phone. Um, what I find amazing is the fact that we have a little principle. Well, this is a quite a big principle, but it's, it, there are still people out there who are trying to prove it. Totally. Um, the idea that he, uh, uh, Einstein was, had a, a curious belief about religion. Uh, Winston Churchill said, do you believe in the Church of England? He said, think of me not as inside the cathedral, but as an external buttress leaning against it from outside. And Einstein was kind of like that. He didn't believe the detailed facts of uh, religion, but he liked the idea that there was some powerful connecting force. And he thought that force was simple. So he believed everything complicated in the universe, uh, GPS in the future, uh, people on the roofs in Switzerland, all that could be explained by a few very simple principles. Things like E equals MC squared or the simple, the, his equations of these relativity things that are being tested are very short. I love the fact that you think that E equals MC squared is a simple thing. Oh, it turns out it's immensely complicated if you open it up, but you can say it in six letters. If I told you the secrets of the universe is in this enormous thousand page book, you'd say, okay, maybe. If I told you the secrets of the universe can be written on the back of my little fingernail, though please be gentle on it, you'd say, how could it fit there? And for Einstein, that's what was magical, that all these truths are hidden in something really small, and even better, 
that we could see it. Well, some of us could so see it. So if you have, uh, you've sort of explained it a little bit. So I'm, I'm going to say this. I've never done this on The Globalist. Can you explain E equals MC squared in less, Funny than, you in less, than, a, in a, in less than a minute, please? Easy peasy. Um, uh, 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 C squared is just a, a big number. I mean, a seriously big number. M stands for mass. E stands for energy. Mass is something like um, uh, these headphones that I'm holding in my hand. If I have these uh, uh, headphones... And the mass in here turns into energy. You might think, well, if you burn it, you get a little bit of flame. Einstein said, take the amount of mass in here, multiply it by the number C squared. C squared is an incredibly humongous number. That means the amount of energy that's hidden inside here, it's not just a little bit of smoke fumes and plastic fumes. It's much, much more. And he worked out how much it would be. Were these headphones to be turned entirely into energy... Not only would beautiful monocle radio not be here, nor would London not be here, but much of the northern hemisphere of Earth would not be here either. That's how powerful it is. And then when we look at what's happening this week with the, the story of nu- nuclear fusion, I mean, where does that all fit into the bigger story? Uh, for about 50 years, people have been saying nuclear fusion will be ready in just a few years. And they say that quite regularly. Now it's getting closer, but there's a huge amount of engineering to do. Finally, um, your book, Einstein's Greatest Mistake, you have been talking extensively about how brilliant Albert Einstein was. What was his greatest mistake? His mistake was that he, um, can I say, drank his own Kool-Aid? He was so used to the idea that the, universe was simp- that the universe was simple and clear and understandable that when a new generation of scientists came in saying, well, there's inherent probability and things bounce around and you can't predict it, he said, no, 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 you're wrong. Give me long enough and I'll be able to show that I'm right and you're wrong. But he never found the time. David Badanis, making a great case for being the world's greatest science teacher. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Thirty-seven in uh, Zurich, which is where we head now for our newspapers. I'm joined by Florian Egli, Senior Associate of the Swiss Foreign Policy Think Tank, Voraus. Hello, Florian. Good to have you with us. Hello, Emma. How, nice to be here. How is Zurich looking this morning? Very snowy, very snowy. I barely made it to the studio, I have to say. I had to leave my bicycle at home, tried to get a bus. Bus was late, was walking. So, yes, but I made it. This doesn't sound very Zurich. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's have a look at what's been uh, making the papers where you are. Tell us, uh, tell us what's, what's caught your eye. So first up is uh, an international story. So um, heads of states and ministers and negotiators are gathering in Montreal for the International Conference of the Party on Biodiversity, where they try to negotiate a deal to put 30% of all land and 30% of all seas um, under protection, which is deemed necessary to hold biodiversity loss. Yet the geopolitics around that make it very difficult to strike a deal. So just explain to us just the threat that nature finds itself under under here and what people are trying to do about it. So the the numbers are indeed quite quite crazy. So since uh, 1970 um, 69% of all animal populations have vanished. Um, in Latin America and the Caribbean is even 94%. So I don't even know what's remaining in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, it's quite crazy. So that's a, um, a story that's um, in The Guardian um, and also in the Süddeutsche Zeitung. It's the, it's the lead story. Um, so it, we're facing dramatic biodiversity declines. But interestingly, science, scientists tell us that they don't really know what 
a loss of species is dangerous. So there might be some tipping points where, you know, all the things that we need um, to produce food, for example, pollination by bees and all of that is not no longer working. But nobody can really tell us now at what point that will be the case. Um, and it's quite staggering that, you know, in some areas, more than 90% of animal populations have been lost in the past 50 years, and yet the ecosystems are still functioning. So um, it's kind of you know, scientifically unclear. And that's, I think, part of why it's so difficult to politically find an agreement. Exactly. It's that lack of clarity, isn't it? That probably that people could arguably says forces people, well, people just don't feel as if they're forced to take it seriously enough because there's nothing clear enough on the table. Indeed, and that's one of the big problems when we have these um, so-called tail risks. So these things that are potentially catastrophic, but yet we don't really know when they are and if they will be. Um, and we as societies, I think, are really bad in managing these. I mean, climate change is another example, but I think biodiversity is even kind of is even more prominent because we don't we really know little about it. Um, and yet it is probably a huge problem, but um, we cannot really address it because um, it, it it's not in, in our face. It's not, you know, in the discourse. Uh, it's not really visible. It's it's um, something that happens in the background and in our busy and um, hectic lives. We tend to forget about these. And then it's very hard to, you know, make decisions that will actually address this and, and that are potentially also costly in the short run, of course. Let's uh, move on to an article in the Tagesanzeiger coming out of uh, out of Switzerland, out of Zurich. And this is a big story because it addresses two of the big things that the Swiss are incredibly good at. One is making watches and secondly is education in a, in a professional sense, a sort of Lehrlingsprogramm. The, 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 the idea of the apprentice being the, you know, the future bolster of the workforce. <laughs> Both neither doing terribly well. No, and Switzerland is incredibly proud of both, as you said. Um, so we're trying to promote our dual education system, which we call this as an apprenticeship or you know the opportunity to go study um, everywhere around the world. And of course, we're trying to export watches every um, to every country on the planet. So it's the third biggest export industry of Switzerland. And interestingly, it's an industry that is concentrated in parts of Switzerland that are typically structurally um, or economically um, weaker. So um, we have um, f- three of the four largest um, watchmaking cantons are um, Neuchâtel, Bern and Jura, which are all kind of rather rural ones um, um, that have seen a lot of um, industry decline in the past. So it's a very important industry for um, for these regions. And and now the industry has reckoned that they um, lack around 40,000 people um, because they've underestimated um, um, how little people are actually, how little workers are actually replaced um, by mechanical improvements and also how they've underestimated how fast the demand in China and the US has gone up again after after COVID. And the problem about this is, um, you know, an apprenticeship um, takes three years. So it's really, it's really not something that you can turn on at the instance. So um, there will be serious shortages of workers in the watchmaking industry. And at the same time, you know, Switzerland has a pretty strict immigration regime where um, for each country, um, the, the federal council actually approves um, you know, the number of people per sector that can come to Switzerland and work. Um, and so it's, it's also hard to find people you know, from abroad unless they're um, from the European Union, where it's some, somewhat easier, but also not easy. And what is happening now is that um, just looking at this article in the Tagus Anzeiger is talking about companies like Shopard are talking about a, a charm offensive to convince young people that a career making watches is actually something worth doing. 
Yeah, I, I really am I'm interested to see this, right? I mean, how will this play out? Will I actually get to see this charm offensive? I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and, you know, part of what they talk about is the salary. So apparently you can make 4,800 Swiss francs right after your apprenticeship if you start working in the watchmaking industry. Um, but I think one of the problems, if you want to talk to young people, is really where this industry is. Because, you know, part of it is in Geneva, which is reasonably fine. But then who of the, like, 25 or 20 years old wants to move to Jura, which is like really far off, you know, it's kind of probably much more snow there right now. Um, it's these towns of 10, 15, 20,000 inhabitants. It's the French speaking region of Switzerland. Um, so it's going to be hard to convince people to move there, I think. Let's move on to a brilliant article in the New York Times that you've picked up at, which um, we're all looking forward with great excitement to the uh, World Cup final on Sunday. Many of us have been rather surprised and delighted to see how well Argentina has been doing. So there's been questions asked about what is making Argentina go, go so brilliantly. Uh, Lionel Messi is one thing, but a cup of tea is being con- being credited as being one of the great uh, secret powers of the Argentinian uh, football team. Yes, the New York Times claims to have uncovered finally the secret ingredient of the Argentinian success, it might be yerba mate. So um, three teams officially declared importing um, yerba mate to Qatar. Um, Brazil imported 26 pounds, Uruguay imported uh, 530 pounds and Argentina imported a staggering 1,100 pounds of yerba mate for their 75 staff in Qatar. So no wonder they make it that far. What is yerba mate for those of us who don't regularly import 26 pounds of it in our shopping list? <laughs> so apparently um, it comes in three, I mean, at least Argentina imported it in three varieties. So with stems, without stems and with herbs. Um, so basically it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a drink, right? That you, you, you pour yourself like a tea and it's very heavy on caffeine. Um, it's traditionally, it, it comes from the indigenous populations in South um, America. It has then apparently been really um, brought to a lot of different regions by the Jesuits, so um, kind of a missionary, a missionary quest of yerba mate, and it has an antioxidant um, property, which is apparently very good um, to play football. So that's all um, information that I get from Juan Jose. Um, what's his last name? Um, Skivoski. He's the president Sitovsky. of the Nas- <laughs> He's the president of the National Institute of Yerba Mate in Argentina. Um, I mean, that must be a fabulous institute. And there is also information that Messi, Suarez, Neymar, and also interestingly Antoine Griezmann, who's um, arguably the most important um, French player currently, because he kind of reinvented himself as a more defensive player. So he also drinks a lot of mate because he's played together with the with the um, um, with the others um, in the club. So it's not so clear how this will play out in the final, I guess, because both sides have some at least uh, players that are infused with mate if only we knew that a simple cup of tea could make things happen thank you so much florian egli uh, on the line from dufourstrasse 90 in zurich you at the globalist ubs is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage built on the unique dedication of our people we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
7.46 here in London. Let's talk about tech with Josh Coles, who's a researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. Good morning, Josh. Good morning, Emma. Good to have you with us on the programme. Uh, let's talk about, well, you've been mentioning it in the news headlines, this, this sort of a, the latest purge from Twitter of people whom Elon Musk may perceive to be a threat. We have people who follow aeroplanes, and we also, quite worryingly, have uh, quite a few high-profile tech journalists. Yes, this is quite an extraordinary um, update to a story which has, of course, been running all year and that we've spoken about many times. Um, but as you say, it does appear that Elon Musk has, in fact, suspended several top journalists from uh, from the social media platform in relation to seemingly this account, which has uh, picked up a bit of a cult following in recent months, posting uh, the location and movements of Musk's private plane. Uh, Musk, in his uh, defense of the suspension, suggested that this was uh, something to do with the, the fact that uh, this, this account has been posting, quote, basically assassination coordinates, which sounds to me like a, a, a bit of an overstatement, really, certainly about what these journalists were doing, which is merely covering this, uh, this secondhand uh, Twitter account. But it really will, I think... Um, send further shortwaves through uh, the, the people who use Twitter the most, that is journalists, media types, uh, politicians, and so on. And I think really is is a further uh, clarion call about the direction that Twitter may be heading in. Indeed. I mean, yes, if you're going to take this entirely from Elon Musk's point of view, you could possibly understand why having someone telling everybody where you are on an aeroplane might not be something that you really want to share. But the fact remains is that what kind of journalists are we talking about here who are being kicked off Twitter? Yeah, so these are uh, high-profile journalists working for the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, and uh, outlets like that who cover tech, uh, who are, uh, you know, maybe have written one or two stories about this account, but really have very little uh, else uh, with, uh, you know, to do with that account. And uh, really, their, their beat is covering Twitter and covering Musk. So what it looks like, really, is uh, that Musk is trying to suppress any uh, dissent or any... Um, uh, you know, negative coverage of his new ownership of the platform uh, in a way that may actually, uh, I think, reflect pretty bad on his supposed commitment to freedom of speech, which he touted quite considerably uh, when he took over the platform in the first place. He even pledged that he wouldn't remove this uh, this account in question uh, at the time he took over. So he's clearly had a change of heart. So even if there is a genuine uh, safety risk posed by this particular account, which is itself questionable, the idea of banning journalists who cover uh, that that banning itself is uh, is I think a bit Kafkaesque. Tell us a little bit about where Twitter now sits, given the fact that when Elon Musk was announced as a new owner, people fled and they went to alternative platforms. But Twitter still seems to be standing. It does seem to be for the moment. I mean, it's tough to get exact uh, usage statistics out of uh, out of Twitter um, in terms of how many people are using it and so on. Its alternatives are, however, I think gaining a bit of steam. Mastodon is the one that is often cited as a potential alternative. Now, what this, um, you know, what this means in the kind of medium term, we're going to have to wait and see. But I think there will be potentially a critical mass uh, now in the next um, next couple of st- scandals, which will, I think, dissuade people from uh, from really committing and investing uh, to Twitter. If you spent 10 years or 15 years building up a following of thousands of users, um, and that can be taken over, uh, taken away overnight. That really does, I think, pose a, a serious problem for uh, for you know Twitter's future growth and the idea that this is where the conversation happens. And could we see a knock-on effect on any other parts of the the, the Musk empire? Insofar as if trust is undermined in Twitter, investors will be slightly more twitchy to invest in, let's say, Tesla. Yeah, I think that's right. And although. Um, 
one of the first things Musk did uh, when he took over Twitter was to uh, remove the board of directors, removing some onus oversight from him. He does, as you say, have a, a much wider tech empire, which has very little to do with running social networks, which is much more about creating electric cars and, and trying to get to space. Uh, the knock-on effect, however, could be quite significant here because Tesla has traditionally been associated with the sort of progressive types who also make up Twitter because, of course, electric vehicles are, are better for the environment and, and so on. The idea that this could actually in turn bring down elements of, of Musk's wider empire, including Tesla, and it does seem like the Tesla share price is, is dropping, is a really step, I think, uh, as well as, as we look ahead. Finally, you've got less than a minute to explain the maddest story of the week, which is Donald Trump and non-fungible tokens. I've got very good at explaining things in less than a minute on, on this show. <laughs> Thanks, so this is the uh, This is the news that um, Donald Trump has launched a series of digital trading cards, which are technically non-fungible tokens, basically digital assets that have no physical manifestation, but which you can buy and sell and, and claim ownership over. Uh, and so uh, Trump's uh, decision to launch this, what he's described as basically like baseball cards, but more exciting. Uh, was trailed as a major announcement before he made it. And this is maybe it's being speculated he's going to uh, announce his vice president for his upcoming campaign or weigh in on the speaker's race in D.C. Actually, nothing nothing like it. He's released a series of pretty farcical baseball cards which depict Trump himself as uh, any number of superheroes and sheriffs and cowboys and, and so on. It's pretty farcical even uh, when we've come to expect from Trump. And it's even raised questions about whether Trump is actually very serious about his presidential run because the funds raised here will go directly to him and perhaps some of his legal troubles and not to his campaign, which has got even his allies questioning whether he's uh, any more serious than he's been for the last couple of years. Josh Coles, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You with The Globalist. And finally, here's Monocle's Andrew Muller bringing us his weekly dispatch of everything we know now that we didn't at the start of the week. We learned this week that it is maybe actually possible to feel an amount of sympathy for Russia's soldiers deployed in Ukraine. Over and above, obviously, the fact that they're cold, badly supplied, poorly equipped, ineptly led, and pawns in a crime as vast as it is futile. We learned that, who knows, perhaps as a consequence of all of the preceding, it had been noted that morale in the trenches was ebbing somewhat, and we learned that someone at Russia's defence ministry had had an idea for fixing this. We learned that, rather regrettably, the idea was not calling the whole thing off, getting everybody home for Christmas, enacting a swift and efficient coup d'etat and then overseeing a seamless transition to functional democracy and letting somebody sane have a lash at running the joint, but was, broadly, this. Yes. We learned that the Ministry had decided that what would really cheer up the troops at the front was not winter clothing, flak jackets, rations, ammunition, competent commanders and an honourable mission, but balalaikas, harmonicas and accordions. We learned that the Ministry, and we checked the date, it wasn't Orthodox Fool's Day or anything, believe that such instruments will, and we quote, support morale and unity, inspire heroic deeds, and moral and psychological relief among Russia's invading army. 
We learned that, accordingly, municipal authorities in St. Petersburg have opened collection points at which citizens may donate unwanted accordions. Unwanted accordions. Imagine. <coughs> we learned that, basically, Russia's Ministry of Defence is now the new stooge in the old joke about the accordionist who leaves his accordion in his car when he goes to the shops and returns to find the window has been smashed and there are ten accordions. Here all week. Try the stroganoff. That'll do. Mallet. They can always burn the accordions, and indeed should. Elsewhere on the Eastern Front, we learn that Poland, if we can extrapolate sweeping conclusions from a single somewhat silly news story, and why not, it's our monologue, appears keen to position itself as a rival to Florida, the and finally state, as a supplier of the kind of inexplicable idiocy which is of greatly welcomed assistance in padding out whimsical news reviews such as this. So cheers, Poland. We learned that in Poland's northwest, near a village we are not going to amuse you all by attempting to pronounce the tyres of 21 vehicles in a meat warehouse parking lot had been slashed by a miscreant dressed as a Christmas tree. Let's hear it for the detailed evocation of the sound of someone dressed as a Christmas tree slashing tyres there. We have not learned as yet of either the identity or the motives of the branch-bedecked ne'er-do-well. Yes, yes, police are stumped. Hey! More happily, we learn that there is emu news. Retrieve, if you will, from the vault. Emu Strut by 1980s Australian bluegrass sensations The Flying Emus, winner of Best Instrumental at the 1987 Australian Country Music Awards. Because listeners who have been with us a while, and thank you, may recall that circa July 2020 we learned that a pub in the Queensland hamlet of Yarraka had been compelled to formally disbar two emus, known locally as Kevin and Carol, who had been barging into the premises, knocking things over, getting in the way, making a mess, and snatching toast from the toaster. We were, at the time, unable to rise above a tawdry joke about how it wouldn't have been the first time that a pub in Queensland had been obliged to eject malodorous and unruly patrons, but what are we going to do? It was right there. Yeah. Anyway, we learned subsequent to their banishment that Kevin and Carol had taken the hint and vanished into the fathomless outback. We learned this week that Kevin and Carol are back. The pair have returned to Yarraka, along with evidence of what they have been up to in their absence, specifically a brood of four emu chicks. Emu chicks are extremely cute, up until the point that they grow into the infamously querulous, crotchety, toast-thieving creatures which spawned them. Anyway, not only is this a heartwarming tale in and of itself, it tees us up nicely to play out with some appropriately Christmas and large flightless bird-related music. Here is Chris... Rhea? Come on, like Rhea, another large flightless bird native to South America. This is an excellent joke and not, as you unlettered morons appear to believe, a bad one. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Oh, I can't wait to see the-
My thanks to Andrew Muller for that. That's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Laura Kramer and Carlotta Ribello. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands and our studio manager was Steph Chunga with editing assistance by Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday in London. The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.